chapter 18, now reading at verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Well, last week we were talking about perseverance in prayer with the parable of the importunate widow. You'll remember, boys and girls, when we talked about that story, there was this unrighteous judge and he was unwilling To listen to this poor and needy woman. But she kept after the judge until he grew tired of her coming all the time and decided, yes, I'll help you. If for no other reason, I just simply want you to stop bothering me. And Jesus said we need to hear what the unrighteous judge said, that it reflects something about the reality of prayer with the Christian and with the church. And that is when we pray, it's from our perspective may seem like God isn't hearing us. But yet, uh, if we will persevere in prayer, God is often pleased when we pray, especially according to his will, that he answers us. So Luke here gives us another parable on prayer today. And this one, again, uh, like the other one is about a very important topic because we pray every day. And so it's important that we understand this parable as well. Not only do we need to be importunate, that is persevering, coming again and again, but also we need to do so with a humble spirit. This is a parable about two different worshipers. One man is proud and religious. Another man is mourning and repenting before the Lord. One man is self-righteous and the other man is Christ-righteous. And I want to talk about these two men. Now, first of all, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction here. And then we're going to look first at the Pharisee and then secondly at the publican and make some applications. So by way of introduction, I want you to look with me at verse 9. Here Luke tells us really the context of this parable. And we see it here. Verse nine, and he, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So notice here what is in view as far as the context. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people and in that crowd are those who are self-righteous. That is to explain that for the young children in the congregation here to be self-righteous means That you're trusting in your own person, in your own goodness, in your own works, 
rather than trusting in God for salvation. Now, this is not something that is good, but it is something that is common to us all because we're sinners. And so we need to learn from this parable as well, because the person in the parable who is self-righteous does not have a relationship with God. And one of the things we want you to understand, boys and girls, as you grow older in the church, is we want you to make certain that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't want you to think that the relationship that you have with the Lord is based on what you do, based on on your piety or based on your prayers or based on your uh, merits or how good you are to uh, neighbors or anything like that. The relationship that a Christian has comes by way of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. And if we have any other foundation, then we have no place really to stand. It's a sinking sand foundation rather than a solid rock. And we want you to build your life on a solid rock. So I want every young person here to understand that, that there is a big difference between self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness. And what we want for you is Christ's righteousness given to you and you receive it by faith in him. So let's talk a little bit about this. This is the context. Now, the, the, there are people in the audience who are self-righteous. Now, what is the evidence of this? Well, Luke tells us in verse nine that the evidence of it is pride and the pride is expressed in their despising of other people, having contempt for others, viewing others as less than themselves. So I would argue that contempt today even still is a manifestation of self-righteousness. One of the things we may have to do if we're to have a right relationship with God is This morning, we may have to first ask the Lord to forgive us of our self-righteousness, of our pride, that he would hear us for the sake of Jesus Christ, that our worship service is not in vain. Wouldn't it be terrible to go home this afternoon unjustified in the sight of God because we're trusting in ourselves, because we're trusting in our works. We're trusting in the fact that we're OPC. We're trusting in the fact that we're reformed rather than trusting in Christ. And one of the ways that this sometimes is manifest is that we look down on other denominations. We look down on other others who are unchurched and we view them as with contempt rather than viewing them with love or grace or pity. So this is a story about two people going to worship. Two people going to church to put it in the modern vernacular. In the story, of course, Boys and girls are going to the temple, the place of worship. But you could think of it in our own terms today. Two professing Christians, maybe even going to the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And one of them goes home abiding under the wrath of God still. Under the curse of the law. Though that man is very observant religiously. He is not justified in the sight of God. What does it mean to be justified? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's what our catechism teaches. And Jesus is plainly saying here that the Pharisee, even though he's religious, even though he's observant, 
even though he works hard at, at an outward conformity to the law of God, he is unjustified. He has no faith in Christ. He has no faith in the Lord. And we don't want that here among us. So first of all, let's look at the Pharisee in verses 11 to 12. And then after that, we'll look at the tax collector in verse 13. And we'll close maybe with a few applications as time permits. Now look at our text again in verse 11. Let's look at the Pharisee, verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Did you catch that? Did you notice what Luke said there? The Pharisee stood and was praying this to God. No, praying this to himself. He's not even praying to God, really. He's not even really sincerely addressing God. He's simply praising himself to himself. He's praying to himself. It's, this is a prayerless prayer. He's not even praying why? Why is he not praying to the Lord? Why is he praying to himself? Because he, this man experientially has no real vital communion with God. He does not know God. And the Lord does not know him. We just had a, a, a prominent pastor renounce his faith in Jesus Christ yesterday on Instagram. He, he had no vital relationship with the Lord, though he was being used of the Lord to teach the Lord's word, there was no vital relationship. John tells us he went out from us because he was not of us. And this Pharisee here, the same is true of him. He has no relationship with God, even though he's at the temple. He is he is boasting only in himself. For him, Judaism is, is just a formula. For him, it's just a, a cultural formula. The Pharisee is perverting the law of God rather than really in fulfilling the law of God. Look what he says. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Now, where did he get that? The Old Testament law didn't teach that. The Old Testament law taught all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, to put it in the language of Romans. The law of God taught that there is none righteous, no, not one. The law of God, if this man really had understood the law of God, if he had truly had saving faith in the Lord, he would have understood that that the law pronounced him unclean on a regular basis. And, and that the, the reason he had to keep making sacrifices at the temple was because he's a sinner, because he's unclean and he needs God to cleanse him and to justify him. So the Pharisee is perverting the law of God when he says he think, thanks God that he's not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers. That's exactly what the law was saying he was. Friends, you do not have a relationship with God if you do not see yourself as an adulterer by nature. If you do not see yourself as a thief, a liar, an idolater by nature, a breaker of, of the honor of your parents, a murderer from the heart, 
That's who we are. That's what the law says about us. This man doesn't have even the beginnings of the understanding of what it means to be justified before God. He thinks his little external ceremonies make him better than others because he maybe physically has never slept with a woman who is not his wife. He thinks, therefore, he's better than somebody who has. But Jesus teaches plainly that the law of God says what? If we so much as look at a woman lasciviously so as to lust after her, we have committed adultery. That if I am angry with my brother unjustly so as to say, you fool, I'm worthy of hell, Jesus says. That's the teaching of the law of God. You remember John Bunyan, right? You remember John Bunyan, boys and girls, I hope you've read it. I hope you've, it's been read to you, his book, Pilgrim's Progress. You remember, you remember when Christian foolishly tried to climb the mountain? And he almost dies, doesn't he? The mountain is full of fire and lightning and the rocks are falling all around him. And what John Bunyan is communicating there is the law of God, the law of Moses was never intended to save you. The Pharisee thought that was his ticket to salvation, didn't he? He thought he would be justified by the works of the law. He thought he would be justified by his obedience, his behavior. And instead, he, he, he doesn't even begin to realize the first lesson. The first lesson is God is holy and a righteous God and I'm a sinner. And the next lesson that immediately follows is that thereby, thereby I need to go to Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians, the law was a, a tutor. You know, if you're struggling in school and you're not getting a particular subject down like you should, you, you get extra help and you get a tutor in that subject and they help you with the math and they help you with the homework and they help explain it again to you so that you can get a better handle on it. The law is like that. The law is like the after school teacher. And keeps telling you, you need to go to Jesus Christ by faith. That's the only way you can be justified in the sight of God. So rather than saying, I'm not like other people, that's exactly what we should be saying. Lord, I'm just like them. But by your grace. Notice here what he's he boasts in. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. Skipping food two times. A week. Two days. You know, if any of you have done any fasting and prayer and fasting is commendable, not not demeaning fasting. But I uh, am saying here that but that's what the Pharisee was trusting in. To be justified by God, I'll be justified because I fast twice a week. I'll be justified by my zeal, Lord, because you see my zeal that that will justify me. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, again, I believe in tithing. I believe in tithing and more uh, in, the, in the New Testament economy. But the, the, the tithe does not atone for sin. The, the tithe is simply my consecrating myself to God for what Jesus Christ has done in my life. That's why I tithe. Why do I tithe? Because I'm saying, Lord, all I am and all I have is yours. As I give of this tithe to you, 
Not because, Lord, I seek to be justified by this, but because I am justified by Christ. Because I stand as a sinner justified in your sight through faith in the work of your son. I give of my tithes and of my my offerings to you in thankfulness. So what is the Pharisee doing? He's looking to himself rather than to God. He's trying to justify himself before men and before God by his own works. And he doesn't see himself as a sinner in need of grace. He sees himself as a righteous man based on some small acts of piety. Now, this these works done by the Pharisee, this is not evangelical obedience. This is a slavish obedience. This is an obedience that tries to earn merit. This is an obedience that we want to avoid, boys and girls. We want to obey God's law, of course. We want to do all his moral precepts, but we do so by faith in Christ. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God, even if you're tithing and fasting. Okay? But by faith in Jesus Christ, our faith is what gains us the acceptance before God. And then we come with gratitude and bring our obedience to his commandments. Now, let me say this by application. Uh, This is a danger for us all. Pharisaism is a danger for everyone, even even for Christians. We can slip back. I think this was part of the problem with the Galatians. They began with the spirit, but they began later then to seek to justify themselves according to the to the works of the law. And that's why Paul comes at them like a, a mother bear robbed of her cubs. That's why it's the only letter of Paul where he says where he doesn't say, I give thanks to God for you all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He just gets right into it. Because they're abandoning the gospel. They're abandoning Christ by seeking to be justified through circumcision by the works of the law. And it is possible for us to begin well and to finish poorly. It is a temptation even for the Christian to fall back into this fatal error that we are justified based on our own works. So what do we do? Well, if we are to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we must confess and sincerely acknowledge our own moral bankruptcy by nature. Dependence on fastings and prayers and church attendance and giving, uh, family devotions, psalm and hymn singing, abstaining from ordinary blessings. None of that will do us any good. No pilgrimages, no college do good projects, no civic involvement, no community or international activism can remove even one sin. Not even one picadillo is removed from the scales of God's balance. Only Jesus Christ's blood can wash away and atone for sin. Your works are sin in the sight of God unless you first humble yourself and acknowledge the provision of Jesus Christ. You know, that this is what our confession, you remember, teaches that people who are outside of Christ that do, quote unquote, good deeds, helping the elderly woman across the street is sin. 
Now, it's even more sin if he doesn't help her. But apart from faith in Christ, it's sin even if he does help her. that, 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 That does not earn any favor with God. Because man has done it as a part of his continued rebellion against God. He believes that this is how he's justified before others. By helping an elderly woman across the street. It's self-righteousness. Now I know somebody might be thinking, that's tough, Pastor. But that is what the Bible teaches. Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. We must come to him on God's terms. And God's terms are this. Complete, unconditional surrender, acknowledgement of your own guilt and sin, and trusting only in Jesus Christ. Nothing else will avail. There are no other terms. Now, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God... Uh, that dominion of self-righteousness is broken in the, in the, in the life of the Christian. The, the dominion, self-righteousness has dominion over the non-believer. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the dominion of that sin of self-righteousness is broken. But it, it, like any sin, it, it continues, it abides, and it must be mortified like every other sin in our life. Self-righteousness, to put it one way, is like a lifelong addiction. And the dominion of it is, is broken by the grace of God, but it's one by which we have to fight against all our lives. Until we are perfected in glory, we will always be combating this temptation in our life to somehow keep even a thread of our own righteousness in our pocket to pull out just in case. Just in case Christ isn't enough for us. There's a little Pharisee within us all. Now, some people think that the cure for Phariseeism is then to introduce a little lawlessness into their life. Antinomianism. They think, well, okay, I I realize I have this temptation to legalism. I have this temptation to self-righteousness. I have this temptation to be a little Pharisee. And so what I need to do is I I need to be a little publican as well. And that will balance me out. I'll practice some lawlessness just to remind myself I need Jesus Christ. And I'll I'll, I'll practice a little antinomianism and I'll, I'll do things that are against God's law. And, and, and that, that, that's the cure. You know, if, you, if, if I've got a kid who's legalistic, well, you know, I emphasize lawlessness. That's how you counterbalance it. No. Antinomianism it, uh, does not cure legalism. And, and the cure of Pharisaism is not to introduce lawlessness. The cure is as bad as the disease. The Pharisee does not need to take up some of the sins of the publican so that he can learn about grace. He needs to humble himself like the publican. How do you keep from going home unjustified? Number one, you need to confess your sins before the Lord. The Bible says he who says he has no sin is a liar. That's the that's the irony, isn't it? The man who 
says I am righteous is actually unrighteous. That is speaking within himself. So we have to confess our sins. We have to see ourselves as sins. We need to have a large view of the law of God and how searching the law of God is. How pervasive the law is and how often we break it in words, thoughts and deeds. You know, that's not to be morbid. It's not to be a downer. The, the reason we need to do this is, is one, it's reality. And two, you'll get a better appreciation for Jesus Christ. When, when you see the enormity of your sin, you'll see the excellency of Jesus more clearly. You know, that's the reason when you go to the jewelry store, they put out a, a dark cloth on the, on the countertop and then put the diamond on top of it. So you can see the, the diamond more clearly. And, and when we consider the, the darkness of our own depravity, we see the excellency, the beauty, the righteousness, the sinlessness, the grace, the love of Jesus Christ better. And we love him more. Those who are forgiven much, they what? They love much. And the more you see the need to be forgiven, the more wonderful the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ appears to us. Because we realize how much more we've been forgiven. You know, the one of the strange, mysterious things about growing in grace as a Christian is that as you mature in Christ over the years, you actually... See yourself worse and worse. More, the more you actually grow in sanctification. Uh, don't think that it actually makes you feel better. About yourself. It actually in many ways has the opposite effect. That, that the most holy people, the most people who are attaining to the greatest levels of grace and sanctification have a very dim view of themselves and their motives and, and why they love Jesus all the more. You'll sin less as you grow in grace. But you'll feel more awful about the sins you do commit. Even though they'd be fewer than you did a few decades ago. We need a large view of the law and large view of sin so we can have a large view of Jesus Christ. So you, you need to confess your sins, have a, a view of Jesus Christ, and you need to, then you need to lay hold of Christ by faith. You can't just look at Jesus from a distance, boys and girls. You just, that is, you, you can't just uh, kind of take him intellectually and, and, and just intellectually observe him like you would a bug in a in a biology class. Some people do examine God that way. They examine Christ that way. You know, he's this is some something in a petri dish that I'm going to put under a microscope and examine. Faith is more than than knowledge. It must have knowledge ordinarily, though God makes provision for disabled people, but Ordinarily, it's in an in a average person, it, uh, it must include knowledge. I must have a right understanding of who Jesus is. He's the son of God. He's God of God. He's a real man. He's a real human being. He's sinless. He lived a holy life. He died on the cross. I, I have to know those things. He 
died for sinners. He was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. I must know that. But but it is not just knowing the truths about that. Satan knows all that and does not trust in him. I must lay hold of Christ by faith. I must believe on him. I must own him. I must take him. I must eat him and drink him. I must have him. By faith. I must give my life to him. I must commit myself to him. I must speak with him in prayer. I must read of him in the Bible and listen for him in his words that as a sheep hears the voice of the shepherd. I must be filled with him by his spirit. The Holy Spirit is sometimes in the New Testament called the spirit of Christ. I must be filled with Christ. Uh, I, I must live out this union with Christ. Christ and I are one, even as Jesus prays in John 17, Lord, that they might be one, even as you and I are one. Well, how does that union come about? Well, it comes about by our common union with Christ. We have union with each other through our union with Christ. Oh, but the Pharisee didn't understand any of this. He had a very superficial, legalistic religion. He had no saving trust and faith in God, though he may have known a lot about God. There was no vital faith. I want to move on to the publican. Look at verse 13. Now Jesus takes us here to the tax collectors, the publican. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, what do we see there? Well, first of all, we see that the publican, the tax collector, views himself as unworthy, doesn't he? He's standing at a distance. He doesn't feel like he should even be in this church service. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you feel that way. And that's, that's not all bad. That's a good thing. A sense that I don't belong, a sense that I, I shouldn't be here, a sense that, I, oh, I'm, I'm not worthy to come into the presence of God. Well, that's not, my friend, that's not all bad. Don't be discouraged by that. You may very well be on the road to healing. The, the publican doesn't see himself as somebody worthy of coming to God. He, he stays at a distance. He stays in the back. And he was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, we see here. A sense of his own humiliation. He knows he's a sinner. And he's grieved over his sin. He knows he's done terrible things. He's brought a lot of harm into other people's lives. He's done things that maybe are even unspeakable. He knows that he is guilty and he's offended a just and a holy God. And so what does he do? He... He's unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, notice here, he, he pleads only the mercy of God. That's all he's asking for. God, show me mercy. I have I have no other hope, Lord, other than your grace. I have no other hope than that you spare me. He knows he's a dead man walking. He knows he's on death row. He knows he's headed to hell. He knows that he is condemned and that he will spend eternity separated from God when he dies. He knows that. 
And so the, the only thing he can do is plead for the mercy of God. That God is a God full of mercy. A God who is compassionate to sinners. That's his only hope. Friends, that is and should be your only hope is the grace of God. It's not because you're a Presbyterian. It's not because you go to Sunday school. It's not because you give to the offering. It's not because you try to be a good Christian and do loving deeds for other people. It is always got to be on the basis of grace. The, the grace of God in Jesus is my only hope when I die. It's, it is only in the mercy of God. God have mercy on me. He's pleading in nothing else. Nothing else can mitigate the wrath of God against him. You know, when you, when you see that sentence from the publican, you begin to realize how foolish the Pharisee is, don't you? The Pharisee thinks his tithing mitigates the awful wrath of God. You remember that scene in the book of Revelation when it says that the wicked will call unto the mountains to fall on us and to the hills to cover us. You remember that? Because of the coming of Jesus Christ, the, the, the wrath of the Lamb of God. You remember that? So terrible is the judgment of God, so awful is the second coming of Christ for those who are outside of Christ. They actually want the mountains to fall upon them. You remember, you remember 9-11? Everybody's running away from the buildings that are collapsing. On the last day, the sinners are running towards the buildings. They would rather, they would rather go towards the buildings that are collapsing than to have to face the wrath of God. And doesn't that make the, it seem foolish to say, oh, God, but I fast twice a week? As though God's going to say, oh, wait. You abstain from food twice a week. That that should mitigate somehow the judgment, the wrath against sin. What is sin? Sin. You know, our confession, our catechism, sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And Jonathan Edwards makes the point that when we sin against God, it becomes an infinite sin because it's against an infinite God. The more majestic the person is, the more honor that they are to be accorded. And there's no one higher than God. You sin against me, well, that is one sin. You sin against your grandmother, that's entirely different. Because she's older. And she is to be given more reverence. If that be true about your grandmother, think about it, what it means to sin against God. And so the, the publican understands it. He understands he has no case except for the grace of God. His only hope. And it, it really shows the foolishness of the Pharisee, doesn't it? We, we need to meditate, I think, on these things. Again, not to be morbid. But to realize the vileness 
of sin. What what, uh, the Puritan Venning said, uh, the sinfulness of sin. If you're here and you wonder, how can I go to heaven? This is the parable for you. You need to take note that it was the sinner who went home unjustified. Think about it. Jesus is talking to self-righteous people. And he's telling them a story of someone who looks a lot like them and somebody who outwardly looks nothing like them. And they're all thinking to themselves that the guy who's going to go home justified will be the Pharisee. And the twist of the plot is that it was just the opposite. And if you're asking, how can I go to heaven? You go to heaven the way the publican went home justified. You acknowledge your sin and you rely on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. What is the principle? Well, the principle is laid out for us in verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is to say this, everyone who exalts his own Worth and righteousness before God will be humbled on the day of judgment. You will be driven away from the great white throne, carried off by angels to be dropped into an everlasting hell reserved for the devil and rebelling spirits. But to those who boast in Christ, who humble themselves, they will be exalted by the Lord. And they will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Your righteousness will shine as noonday in glory for you will have the very righteousness of Jesus upon you. You will be dressed in the very wedding garment of the king at the banquet. The Pharisees will be wearing their own garments. They've refused the garments of Jesus. But the king will spy them out for the wedding crashers that they are. And he will have them removed and they will be speechless. We're told, remember that parable of the wedding? And the man was speechless when the king said, how did you get in here? That'll be on the day, on the final day. The the Pharisees will expect to be on the right hand of Christ. But they'll be on the left side of Jesus. Because they exalted themselves. John the Baptist said it well, said it succinctly. Behold the Lamb of God, didn't he? Who takes away the sins of the world. Behold him by faith. Don't leave yourself open to shame and ridicule on the day of Jesus Christ. But cover yourself with Jesus' perfection. He wants to give you a wedding garment. Did you know in, in that day, you know, if you threw a wedding, one of the reasons weddings were expensive back then was you had to give a wedding garment. To all the guests. You know, you, you read that in the book of Judges with Samson, you know. He goes out and kills a bunch of men to get their garments and gives them out for his wedding. Uh, the, the wedding garment is Jesus' robe for you. It's his righteousness. And, and Jesus says here, What you're wearing is unacceptable. But I've got something for you. And you won't be out of place. You ever shown up somewhere and you didn't get the memo that you were supposed to dress up? (laughs) 
and you feel out of place. Uh, Jesus freely gives his righteousness to everyone who believes. All you have to do is acknowledge what's already true about you, what God already knows about you. And that is the, the truth about yourself, that you're a sinner. And, and God forgives sin in, in Jesus Christ. Let's make certain that OPC does not stand for only Pharisaic church, shall we? Let's pray. Our Father in